Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Jaffa Falston area north of Baltimore, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. If you're nearby on a Sunday, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Revelation 11. In the year, while you turn, 1857, there was a man named Jeremiah Lanfear who had a burden. He felt that New York City needed a prayer meeting. So for three months, Jeremiah went door to door to every business, shop, and boarding house that he could and invited people to come to a prayer meeting at noon on Wednesday, September 23rd, again, 1957, at the old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. It's almost right right next to Ground Zero today. And after three months, when the date came, Jeremiah entered the church just before noon, and no one was there. (laughs) And you'd imagine he's thinking three months of knocking on doors and being looked at like a nutball, all for nothing. 12.10, no one was still there. 12.20, still no one came. At 12.30, five men walked in to pray. So they prayed, nothing special happened, the the Spirit of God didn't descend, no signs from heaven, just six men in a room with a burden for their city and praying for their nation. So they met again the following Wednesday, so they wanted to make this weekly, and to Jeremiah's delight, 14 people came that week. And within six months, 25,000. We're gathering every week at 20 different locations. They couldn't find meeting spaces large enough. It said 10,000 people were saved in New York City every week. And then this led to a nationwide revival known as the American Great Awakenings, which swept through the country. And it all started with six men in an old church praying for God to do something. It said by the time the first American Great Awakening was finished, one million people were in church and made decisions for Christ. I want to tell you another story. (laughs) It's about an English preacher named Duncan Campbell. In November 1949, on the Isle of Lewis, there were two little old ladies named Peggy and Catherine. The one was 84 years old, and the other two was 82 and totally blind. And these two women had a great burden for their island in Scotland. And so they gathered together with the elders and the pastor of their church, and they said, we need to pray for Lewis. And they said, okay, so they would meet corporately, and they would pray privately, and they would pray and pray and pray and pray. And and they were praying specifically for revival. And eventually, they felt very strongly to reach out to an English pastor named Duncan Campbell to come and preach at their island. So the minister sent a message to Duncan, and his response was, I'm sorry, but my schedule is just too booked out for the next two years. And so as the story goes, the minister tells the two ladies the bad news, and they replied, oh, that's what Duncan Campbell says, but God says he's coming. (laughs) Later that day, Duncan was so gripped with a calling to go, he canceled all his appointments 
And he took a train and a steamboat over to Lewis. And he was so moved by God, he didn't even send message back to them. He just left. So he shows up at the, he shows up at the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. And when he got off the boat, the minister was standing there waiting for him. The minister said to Duncan, are you Mr. Campbell? Yes. And he says, are you walking with God? And he says, yes, I am. Now, Duncan's absolutely amazed and goes, how did you know to meet me here? Because I didn't tell anyone I was coming. And the minister said, well, how did you know to come? It was very clear that God was moving on this whole situation. Then the, then the minister said, I know, Mr. Campbell, that you are very tired. You have been traveling all day by train to begin with and then by steamer, so steamboat. And I am sure that you are ready for your supper and ready for, for, for your bed. But I wonder if you would be willing, uh, if you would be prepared to address a meeting in the parish church at nine o'clock tonight on our way home. It will be a short meeting, and then we will make you for the mansa, the room, and you will get your supper and your bed and rest until tomorrow evening. So Duncan agreed, and they got to the church at 9 p.m., and 300 people are waiting for him. So he preaches until 11 a.m., and surprise, surprise, nothing happened. There was no special move, nothing. It was a fine service. He did a fine job, but nothing. So all the people leave and they start packing up and the elders are saying, great job, Mr. Campbell. And they're making chit-chat and he's tired because it's 11 o'clock at night now. And as they're leaving, one of the young elders collapses on the floor. And he says, God, you can't fail us. Because they knew God had brought him here, but nothing happened. He said, God, you can't fail us. You promised you can't fail us. And as soon as he prayed that prayer, the town blacksmith bursted through the front doors of the church and says, something wonderful has happened. <laughs> we were just praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and flood upon, floods upon the dry ground. And he's done it. He's done it. Just then behind the blacksmith, 600 people were walking into the church. They wanted to come in, so they let them in. Now, at the same time, there's a young people's dance across the way, and all these young high schoolers are dancing. All of a sudden, they're all gripped with fear of the Lord. <laughs> All at once, and the power of God fell, and they were aware of their sins, and they all at once ran out of the dance. And when they ran out of the dance, they saw that the church was open, and they all ran into the church. <laughs> now, the clergy, surprise, surprise, didn't know what to do. They're like, what do we do with all these people? It's 11 o'clock at night. Duncan's hungry. So the town blacksmith goes, we should sing hymns. So we should sing psalms, he says. So they sang psalms over and over and over again. And as it goes, there were people, hundreds of people in their beds that night who couldn't sleep. They were so gripped that God, that, that they were heading towards doom and destruction. And so husbands and wives and families got dressed at midnight and came down to the church to realize there was a revival happening. They had no idea. One of the teachers from, the, uh, from this kid's dance cleaned up the, the, town, the hall, ran to the church and fell face flat before the altar and cried out, my God, my God, is there any mercy left for me? 
They were all so gripped with an awareness of their sin and the holiness of God. Fun fact, that first church service continued until four in the morning. (laughs) And this outpouring of God's spirit went on like this for almost three whole years. And by the time this this revival was done, the church in Scotland quadrupled. (sighs) I want to talk about revival today. And what I mean by that is a moment and place and time where God pours his spirit out upon a people in a particular place. And when genuine revival happens, see, we can mistake emotions for revival, We can mistake, oh, that was a great conference for revival. You ever heard that term, I had a mountaintop experience at dot, 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 YWAM, at whatever. But then you leave and in a week you're no different. That's not revival. When genuine revival happens, people change. People repent of their sins. Their life changes. They faithfully attend church. They give themselves to prayer and the reading of the word. Often there is a move of the fear of the Lord and awareness of unworthiness, a consuming reverence for God's holiness. You know, remember when Isaiah stood before the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. This is what happens when you know God. When you really get to know him. You are aware first of who he is, which then reveals who you are. You are a sinner who has fallen short of his glory. And that drives you to Christ on your knees. So today, I want to talk about revival. So if you would, turn with me to the 11th chapter of Revelation if you're not there yet. And I want to make sure we're on the same page, a little house cleaning first. At the end of Revelation chapter 11, John ate a scroll and was told to prophesy. So here's my thinking. I believe Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 13 is the prophecy that John gave after consuming the scroll. Now, I could be wrong, but the timing of verses 1 through 13 seems to be evidence, uh, seems to be an event that takes place at the end of Revelation and the end time. So, and the song at verses 15 through 19 also seems to indicate. So, in short, verses 1 through 13 seems to be a preview of what's to come. And this preview will give way to the movie, so to speak, that will begin and be described in further detail starting at chapter 12. So so chapter 11 seems to be a snippet at the whole back half of the book. And then when we get to chapter 12, it starts over, but in fuller detail. That seems to be what's happening. So verses 1 through 13 is, is the preview for the second half of the Great Tribulation. Again, I could be wrong, but I believe that verses 1 through 13 it is a setup and delivery of what was in the scroll that Jesus opened, and in it is the plan to restore and save the last group of saints before his return. In it is the last great revival before the end, the return of the king. So, with that, let's jump in. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I, John, <clears throat> was given a measuring rod like a staff. 
So he was given a long reed. Think of like a river reed. Uh, He was given one of those to measure. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now we have to pause. In the New Testament, the church was made the true temple of the Lord. Did you know you're the temple of the Lord? Because you are. (laughs) Surprise. You're the temple of the Lord. And Jesus talks about his body as the temple, if you remember. In Acts chapter 2, the, the, the Pentecost reads like a temple dedication. Paul says that we are the temple of God. Then in 70 AD, the Romans burned and tore down the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which should not, would not have come as a surprise to anyone in Israel because Jesus foretold as such over and over and over again. Jesus foretold many times Many times that that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was coming because woe to you for they killed the prophets there. They killed Christ there. So uh, they had rejected the Messiah and Jesus forewarned it many, many times. And one of the things that we can gather here is you notice after Jesus resurrected, he didn't appear to the Pharisees. He only appeared to the believers. Why? Because the resurrection was a verification, was a sign to the believers The destruction of the temple was the sign for the unbelievers. That proved he was the true prophet of God. He was God's son. And loved ones, it's very, it's vitally important for us believers to understand because it gives us so much clarity on different stories within the gospel. But as horrible as the siege of Jerusalem was in 70 A.D., there's a very real sense that John the Baptist said that Jerusalem would be burned and judged. And isn't it true that Jesus walked into the temple and made a whip and flipped over tables? And didn't he prophesy that not one stone would be left upon another? And didn't the Father upon Jesus' death tear a piece of the temple in half? At the crucifixion, he ripped the veil. And then when the Romans burned it down and tore its stones down, really the Romans just finished the job that God started and prophesied against. The temple in Jerusalem was no longer God's dwelling place. God's people are. When the Spirit descended on the church, we became the temple of the living God. Now, that being said, in the last days, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And this is so important. But God's presence won't be there. When the temple in Israel is rebuilt, and this is going to happen one day. I've been on that mountain. There's no temple to the Lord yet. It's coming though. And when the temple in Israel is rebuilt, God's spirit will not dwell there. And why? Because we are the temple. The church is the true temple. However, according to the Bible, the temple in the last days will be rebuilt. And seeming seems possibly, Daniel chapter 9, that the Antichrist builds it. But here we are in Revelation 11, and John is to measure this rebuilt, new, end times temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, knowing this, isn't it kind of odd that God wants the temple measured? Why does he want this temple measured? Why would Jesus want unconverted Jewish people numbered and measured? So that's a question we should have about verse 1. Well, verse 2 is going to help us understand. Verse 2. Cough and break. 
It's espresso over ice this morning, so you all are in trouble. <laughs> Woo! Uh, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Verse 2. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. Aha! The court of the Gentiles is to be left out of the measurement. It has been given over to, quote, the nations, unquote. So it seems that God is interested in only the Jewish people here. Now remember, only the Jewish people were allowed into the temple and the inner courts, and the Gentiles were not. They were, they were only allowed into the outer courts. This is one of the things people charged against Paul, that he brought Gentiles into the temple, which was, permit, was a punishable by death. So the Jewish people are being measured, and specifically, because if we're the temple of God, why would you worship at the temple? Why, why would you go in there to get closer to Yahweh when God's Spirit has descended upon us? Well, this seems to be talking about unconverted Jewish people. And already in the book of Revelation, we've seen the 144,000 Jesus that they marked with the, with the seal of God. They were sealed as God, as his mighty men, as pastors. But there's an important distinction between the end times Jewish revival and the 144,000 here, is that the 144,000 were Messianic Jews. They believed in Yeshua as, as the Messiah. As, they believed Jesus as the Messiah. But here God's going to do a supernatural work. And here it seems those who are worshiping uh, in a godless temple are now being numbered and measured. So let's finish verse 2. But do not measure the outer courts outside of the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And then after the 42 months, God is going to raise two prophets or God's going to raise two prophets from the dead and send an earthquake to Israel. Then verse 13, if you want to hop, you can hop. If you want to listen, you can listen. Verse 13, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. A revival happened. The rest terrified here in verse 13 are the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And this is an event the prophet Zechariah talks about in Zechariah 12.10. And I, this is God talking, uh, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, uh, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad, Riman, and the place of Megiddo. It seems the last revival. Just before the return of King Jesus, God, like he had upon the Jews at Pentecost and the Gentiles at Caesarea, and like God has time and time again throughout church history, God is going to pour his spirit out upon Jerusalem once again. So, we have reached the halfway mark of the book of Revelation. Can you believe we made it? It's only been 55 teachings. We're halfway there. 
chapter 11, in many ways, is the introduction to the second half of this book. And you'll notice when we get to chapter 12, there becomes this increasing focus on the Jewish people. There's almost a shift here from Jew to Gentile. And Paul told us this would happen. I want to read you something that is vitally important to understand uh, to, to, the, to understand the back half of the book of Revelation. And that's in Romans chapter 11. You can turn there if you want. You can listen if you want. We're starting at verse 11. So I asked, did they, he means the Jewish people, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. We are to make Israel jealous. Verse 12. Now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul's talking about a full inclusion of them once again. Now I am speaking, verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my mystery in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the rejection of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the, if the dough offered uh, as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Paul is saying the Gentiles, the non Jewish nations were wild. If you're Irish, you know exactly what this means. <laughs> and God grafted them into Israel. God saved us wild Gentiles. Verse 18. But do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, rem if you are remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. So God broke off the dead branches of Israel and put in its place the Gentiles. They were broken off because of their unbelief. They rejected the Messiah. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Paul just said if the Gentiles stop bearing fruit and spiritually die, God could cut us off and regraft Israel if he wanted to. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul has been saying God could pour his mercies out upon the Jewish people once more. And even cut off his mercies to the Gentiles. And do you know why God can do this? Trick question. <laughs> I love you all so much. Because he's God. God can do whatever he wants. The 
this is what the book of Job is about. Did you know that that's what the book of Job is about? It's not about God, you know, Satan flogging some guy unjustly. It's about the sovereignty of God. Remember when God appears before Job in the whirlwind and Job's been asking God questions like, I don't think this is fair. I don't like that I got, I don't. And God shows up and basically goes, who do you think you are? Does the lightning ask you where it should strike Job? It asked me. Were you there when I set the foundations of the, uh, of the earth, Job? Did I need your counsel? No, because I'm God. I'm God, Job, not you. I can do what I want. And then Job falls on his face. He says, forgive me, God. I ask things I do not understand. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own eyes. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Uh Uh-oh, there's a mystery coming. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Done reading. Here it is, clear as day. There is coming a time, there is coming a time when the time of the Gentiles will come to a close. And God will once again save the Jewish people. And here we are in Revelation 11, and the mystery that Paul talks about in Romans 11 is being now revealed. The Jewish people in the temple are being measured, and the Gentiles are to be left out. And all throughout the Revelation, God has been saving Gentiles. Have you noticed that? God has been saving the nations, saving the nations. He's been witnessing to them. They kill the witnesses. He sends plagues and judgments. Then they start repenting, and then they're killed. So then he sends more witnesses, and then they're killed, and then he starts judging again. And he's just try- he's adding to the church. He's adding to the church. He's adding to the church. All through this book, God has been saving the Gentiles. But sadly, there comes a point in this book where they repent no more. And they become fruitless and dead and reject the Messiah. And now God is going to pour out his favor once again upon the Jewish people. And his kingdom will be filled then with both Jew and Gentile. So, there we go. Three thoughts. It was four. I saved you. First... God's desire. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires that all would be saved. Today's text, alongside the whole canon of Scripture, which I pointed to the prophets, I pointed to the epistles, what we see not just that God saves mankind as he sees fit, but that God also desires all mankind to be saved. You can't read the Old Testament and the New Testament honestly without coming to the knowledge that the God of the Bible is a pursuing, patient, and loving God. When man was in the garden, God told Adam, the day, Adam, you eat of this fruit, you will die. And what'd they do? Had a smorgasbord. And did God strike Adam dead in that very minute? He promised to send his only begotten son to die in his stead. 
And why? Because God desires all to be saved. And these demonstrations of abundant, unearned love carry on all throughout the history of humanity. In the patriarchs we sinned. Jacob was a hot mess. <laughs> in the wilderness. You ever read the Old Testament, the Jews in the wilderness? They're constantly complaining. And if you're honest, that's you too. We grumble incessantly. I woke up this morning like, oh, God, why? You know, I'm grumbling. I've been awake 10 seconds. The king and the kings, they wanted a human king. Can you imagine rejecting God as your king for Saul? Oh, that was a dumb one. (laughs) And the prophets, we were aggressively wayward. And then we get to the church. You know, you ever hear someone say, we need to get back to the purity and the faithfulness of the early church. I hear what people are saying and there's some truth to that. But that's crazy talk. Every single letter just about in the New Testament are refutations against problems. The early church was filled with problems. They're riddled with church discipline cases and apostasy. And then if you read the early fathers, they're constantly dealing with heresies. Like there were new cults springing up like weeds every few minutes. There was a group calling themselves the 144,000 in the time of John, all the way back then. And the early church, we see just in the Bible, they were already suing each other like crazy. They were sleeping around. There were some that were too liberal. There were some that were too legalistic. There were some attached to the law. There were some attached to paganism. Paul seems like if he had any hair, he'd pull it out. If, if the meat stumbles, you don't eat the meat, but the meat's fine. He's always balancing this craziness. The early church, like today, had so many faithful people, of course, but at the same time was riddled with problems. And then we get to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and the seven letters reveal that the church is falling into the same exact sins the Jews did in the Old Testament. But, but God is so patient with us, isn't he? At some, at no point does he walk away from humanity and go, I can't deal with these people anymore. <laughs> if Josh complains one more time. <laughs> he is persistently, un- unwaveringly gracious and merciful to us. And when we read about, you know, you, if you ever want to ruin a really great sermon, ask the preacher why. Because most of the time they can't tell you why. Uh, they got these great points and, you know, you, you hear, ever heard someone say, you got to walk in the spirit. And then you ask them, what's that mean? And they can't answer it. <laughs> ask why. One of the questions we need to ask is, why does the restoration of the Jewish people matter to us tonight? Why? Because the reality is the church today is the same is also the recipient of, of God's spirit of grace too. The spirit of God that's poured out upon the Jewish people in the last day that saves them in their unworthiness is the same spirit of God that saves us from our unworthiness. God's just continuing in their lives. So to help our thinking, the restoration of Israel is not a story of Israel's triumph. It's a story of God's grace. You're not at church today because you're better than those who aren't. You're here today is not a testimony of your awesomeness. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness. 
Now, secondly, God's promise. That being said, here's what I want us to see. That God plans revivals. Isn't that awesome? All through this book, God has been telling us that heaven is going to be filled. How glorious is that? Can we look at heaven as, you know, narrow is the way, you hear Jesus say, which is terrifying. And how are we going to make it? And then Revelation peers the curtain back and shows us that there's almost no more seating room in heaven. There's so many of us in there. And filled not with some kinds of people, but with all kinds of people. Heaven's for everybody. For all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. And since the time of Christ, Israel has been resistant to the gospel. All through Jesus' ministry, he faced resistance where? In Israel. The Gentiles were coming to him and believed. Remember, remember the centurion? He says, I haven't found any faith like this man in all of Israel. And the Samaritans, the Samaritans loved Jesus. Yet his own people rejected him. Yet Revelation reveals that God is going to once again move amongst the Jewish people in a mighty way. And here's my point, is that God is revealing to us the future. And in it, Jesus is showing us that the future is one of revival. Like the story of Pentecost, the Spirit will fall mightily in Jerusalem once again. And you have to remember the context of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. God's Spirit fell upon the 120 in the upper room in the very city where Jesus was just crucified 50 odd days ago. These people who came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ were the very people who chanted crucify him less than two months earlier. And God brought about a whole citywide revival. Why? Not because they were worthy, but because God is gracious. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter is giving his sermon here, and it says, uh, Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, and Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said Peter, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, what shall we do? They were devastated. And they were cut and they were pierced to the heart. They simultaneously in this moment became aware of what? Who God is, which always reveals what? Who we are. And they recognize instantaneously upon their exception, uh, accepting Jesus as Lord, that they were sinners. And they say, what do we do? And of course, they get baptized and 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. This was a revival. Acts chapter 2 is the story of revival. And then these revivals continue to happen in the book of Acts. And then... We see throughout the the patristic fathers, the early fathers, and even in some of John's works, this revival then happened in North Africa and India. You know, India had a revival. Isn't that awesome? Asia, Asia Minor had a revival. And then eventually Rome itself had a revival. And then eventually most of Europe. And then the Americas and Australia and Korea. You know, North Korea used to be called Jerusalem of the East. There were so many Christians there until communism came. And now revival is sweeping across Africa and China. You know revival's happening right now in China? (laughs) 
The gospel is slowly overcoming the globe one revival at a time. God lavishly has and is, and and this is the promise of today's text, God lavishly has and is and will. We cannot fall into the trap of believing in a God who used to. He is a God of who is and who is to come. And God will pour his spirit out and save generations to come. The God who has moved in your life is the God who will move in your children's life. And the God who has moved in your children's life is the God who will be present in your grandchildren's life. And if the Lord tarries for 5,000 more years, he will be just as present then as he is today. And he is faithful to save from age unto age, it says. The Bible tells us clear in day in both history and prophecy that God sovereignly delights to pour his spirit out upon a people whenever and however he chooses. And why? Because you already answered it. Because he's God. (laughs) But there's a warning here. I had a Pentecostal friend who was a pastor who had a yearly revival at his church. And it was a big hoopla. And he would, quote, create an environment for the spirit to come, unquote. I'm not a fan for that sort of thing. And hear me out. We cannot convince God to bring about revival. You can't tell God, revival now, please. (laughs) Isn't that God's business? If we were responsible for revival, that would also mean that we were responsible for salvation. Revival's just mass salvation. We can't save anybody, let alone thousands of people. But what we can do and should do, as the Bible clearly tells us, is to ask. To pray and seek his face for revival. God has no obligation to bring revival upon our request, no matter how sincere we are. However, it is in the asking that he may grant our request. Let me tell you, God brings about revival typically after weeks, months, and years of prayer and faithful preaching. And do you know why? Because by the time it finally happens, there's no illusion till we did it. (laughs) God gets the glory. If I said, we're going to have a revival Friday and it happens, I look like the man. I steal God's due glory. Evil. But if God falls when he chooses, how he chooses, then he gets the glory. You know, as believers, we can get so busy doing for God that we can forget the foundational truth that he's the one actually doing it. And prayer reminds us of that. We fall on our knees before the, before the God Most High and say, God, you have to do it. You can use me if you want. <laughs> or I can carry the bags for the person you want to use. <laughs> but you have to do it. Now, we also pray because prayer not only gives God his glory, but prayer also aligns our heart and will to his And God desires all to be saved. But the question is, do we? Do we really desire to see souls saved? 
When's the last time you mourned for the lost? And when's the last time we mourned for the lost outside of our own families? Mourned for strangers? Jesus instructs us in the Lord's Prayer to pray every day. For, for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray every day. And this only happens through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.8. 8. We, cannot, we cannot please God apart from his spirit. And so for dying men and women to be saved, God's spirit has to come. And we should fall on our knees every day and say, God, you have to do this. Save the lost. Bring your kingdom. Build your church. If you want to use me, great. If you want to use someone else, great. But God, please... You do it. This brings us to our our third and final thought. In the end, God will save the Jewish people. But another question, what about us today? Because here's the trap, right? Can't we hear stories about the restoration of Israel and fall into idolatry with it? Loved ones, I'm sure you all have noticed as we think about what this means to us. What does this mean for America? Because, again, I'm sure you've noticed, but our country is spiritually dying. And our marriages are falling apart. And our families and children are spiritually dying. The great problem of America is not the radical left. The great problem of America is not ultra-maga, right-wing, whatever that means. (laughs) It isn't Joe Biden, it isn't China, and it isn't Russia. God help us, the greatest threat to America is America's churches. At some point, pastors abandon the sufficiency of the word of God. And we started appealing and bending to culture. And activism. We start viewing the scriptures through social change when social change needs to be viewed through the scriptures. And at some point, clergy abandon the sufficiency of the triune God. Then they have forgotten the all most foundational, the most foundational truth that God isn't going to judge us based upon how much coverage we get. Or pastors who tiptoe to get asked to speak at conferences and to be made a big deal of. Ultimately, we only need one person's approval in this entire universe, and it is the Lord's. This is why the first group of people into the lake of fire at the end of Revelation are the cowards. I believe thousands of pastors will be in that. Maybe millions. And at some point, the church decided it was okay to look, speak, dress, and think just like the world Loved ones, if the church is no different than the culture, what exactly are we saving people from? (laughs) What are we drawing them to? (laughs) If we act just like them and we're the representation of Christ on earth and we curse like them, dress like them, watch the same filth as them, what's the difference? We we desperately need a revival in, in America and God help us, it needs to start in America's churches. But loved ones, though our country deserves wrath, and we absolutely do, because we have poisoned the world in our entertainment. 
Though we deserve wrath, our God, the biblical God, is a God of unfailing, unending, unwavering, immutable, immeasurable love. And like those two elderly ladies in Lewis and like Jeremiah Lanford in New York City, let us daily seek God's intervention for our nation. (laughs) And he is faithful. He is faithful. We all need to give ourselves to two things. First, the word. You need to be in the word every day. You know, I think about the story of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. What did God tell Ezekiel? Preach to the bones, Ezekiel. It's like, they're not just dead. They're old, dry, dead bones, God. Preach, son. And so he does. He gives them the word. And slowly the bones rattle and form. And flesh and sinew join over those old dead bones. It's a picture of God using the minister, the word of God, regular people in the preaching of the word of God to to gather and bring life. But there was no breath in them. And then the spirit of God fell. Then they were filled. God delights in sending his spirit when we are talking about his son. It is precisely in the preaching of the word of God and when you are sharing the gospel to the people in your life, that is precisely when God doesn't give you the power to save anybody, but is when you are being faithful and talking about him. Son, as Paul said, I desire to do nothing but speak about Christ and him crucified. That is when God delights to pour his spirit out upon a people and save them. Secondly, we all need to give ourselves to prayer. We need to pray for a kingdom, uh, for for the kingdom and a move of God. And our God is a God of revivals. He desires all to be saved. And he wants sinners, he, he, he wants to save sinners both in and out of the church. But like God says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, and people, most people know this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. America is not beyond saving. You watch the news enough, you'll think it. But according to God... <laughs> America is not beyond saving, and our families are not beyond saving, and we are not beyond grace. But those who are called by his name, Christians at the same time, are not to twiddle our thumbs as families are plunging headlong into hell. As Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Loved ones, I have no idea if America will see another revival, but what I know is God could do it because he's God. And he desires sinners to be saved. And his people, if we, would, if we would share the word and humble ourselves and pray, God may just respond and heal and send his mighty spirit in a mighty way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <sighs> God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you.
We ask for a... God, we ask that you would pour your spirit out upon us mightily. We ask that you would spare our country. We ask that you would spare our families. We ask that you would spare our loved ones. God, we ask that you, you would pour your spirit out upon, uh, upon us and them in a mighty way. And God, at the same time, help us to be faithful. Help us to not only be people of the word, but to be people of prayer. Help us to recognize that you are the God most high and we are not. <laughs> but that you can do all things through us if you so desire. And so God, help us to be faithful and help us to be full of joy in this faithfulness. Because as we walk in obedience, we are full of joy. Help us to see Christ and his forgiveness in our own lives like never before. Help us to understand that you love your people and care for your people. Help us to stop chastising ourselves and putting ourselves beyond the cross. That, that is not true. Preach it to our souls that, that you love your people. And God, let that love and that joy reverberate and echo into all of our conversations and all of our lives and all of our habits, we do pray. And God, we pray for anyone here that does not know you, that your spirit may so grip them today that you may add them to the kingdom and change them thoroughly and genu genuinely. We ask if anyone needs prayer today that they may go to our prayer team off to the side here. Please don't waste this moment. God has brought you to a place of, with, with his people. Do not leave here with, if you need help prayer. And use us today, God. And we ask that you would absolutely decimate our schedules this week and open up opportunities to advance your gospel. Oh, God, take control, we do pray. And in Jesus' name, all who agreed said, amen. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.